portion of God's Word uh, that we'll take a little bit closer look at today from 1 Peter chapter 2. So again, we're looking at, for the next five weeks, uh, this rather short letter, five chapters long, uh, that, that Peter wrote. Peter's a follower of Jesus, and he wrote this letter that was really a traveling letter. It wasn't directed to any one group of people. It was what you would call a circuit letter, where it would be delivered to one congregation. They'd read it, they'd roll it up as a scroll, and they'd pass it on to the next congregation, and it kind of went all the way through Asia Minor, where all these congregations had been set up. And, but the themes uh, is really the same, uh, that here these people are suffering. I think 17 times in this lesson, or in, these, in this letter, he mentions their suffering. Uh, so all these Christians are being persecuted because of their faith, and, and so he gives them a letter of hope. And this is what he says. He says, As you come to him, uh, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priest, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, this is God's word. So were your ears ringing uh, at all this week? Uh, this week, Monday, we had what's called our circuit meeting. So once a month, uh, there's about eight churches in Northern California and then the three churches that were associated here in Reno. We get together uh, in Penryn, California. Uh, that it's kind of like a continuing education thing for pastors. And we, 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 um, we, we learn from one another. And we go to Penryn because that's where our circuit pastor uh, serves. His name is Pastor Waterstrat, and you guys should probably know that name because if I fall over a heart attack right now, he's the guy you call, all right? So call Penryn. Uh, he's the guy that helps with any vacancies or any troubles if, if uh, the pastor's not there. So Pastor Waterstrat's your guy. But as part of a circuit meeting, every time that we get together, he has us go around the room, and we have to give a two- to three-minute update about what's going on at our congregation, challenges, blessings, that type of thing. And, and the word that I always use for Light of the Valleys is eclectic. Um, and maybe that's not a common word, but I like that word, so I use it all the time. Uh, eclectic means this. Uh, this is just off of the dictionary, off of, off of Google. But deriving ideas, style, or taste from a broad and diverse range of sources. And maybe you don't think you're very eclectic, uh, but you're more eclectic than any other group I've served. Uh, so uh, Because what... What's, that's, kind of, that's kind of Reno. Uh, there's people from all over. You know, we have people from the West Coast. We have people from the East Coast. We have people from the Midwest. Uh, we have people from the South, now that Vickers here. Uh, we, have, we have people that are, you know, Dodger fans, and we have people that are Giant fans. We have, 
We have Democrats and we have Republicans. We have singles and we have, we have married or divorced or we have widows and we have, we have young. You know how great it was to have five uh, babies a year or younger on Easter and then we have people, I'm not going to say old, but it just takes a little longer to count the rings perhaps. Um, and so we, we are very, in some ways, an eclectic group. And at times, eclectic can be challenging. We are wired in such a way that says different equals wrong. Or can. We sometimes do that. We don't always appreciate the differences between one another. And, and that's why it's, it's always good to be reminded and that we, and, and by we I mean me as well, uh, that to, to help to, to really think about other people's viewpoints, to appreciate other people's backgrounds, where they're from, what their perspectives are. Uh, because, you know, it is, it is really uh, how God wires us, or, or how God wants his church to look. And sometimes we forget that. And that, causes fr- that can cause friction. Uh, maybe you've experienced that friction. Maybe you've caused that friction, whether it was knowingly or unknowingly. And if you've done it unknowingly, I'm telling you today, maybe be ca- cautious about that. Uh, that. That it's so easy to, to kind of think, well, they're not like me. And so we, we say things, we do things uh, without necessarily appreciating the variety, the eclecticness of who we are. And yet, as eclectic as we are, I would also argue God even actually wants us to be more eclectic. Uh, you, you look at, at how he picked his 12 disciples. If you look at that group, it's only 12 guys. Uh, but, but there's quite a variety, even within those 12. Uh, so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Peter. Peter is probably the most popular of those disciples. But what are some things we know about Peter? He's a fisherman, and yet they're not all fishermen, right? There's a few guys that are fishermen, but there's some other white-collar people among the disciples. Uh, Peter, we know, was married. We don't know if his wife was still living when Jesus called him to be a father, but we know he still had a mother-in-law. And so he's, he's a married guy, and yet there's other disciples. There's other disciples that were single. Uh, they're politically, they were all over the board. You have a guy by the name of Matthew, or also goes by the name of Levi. Uh, he's a, he's a, uh, a tax collector, which means he's friend of Romans, pro-Roman. And then you have a guy named Simon, the zealot, who was anti-Roman. He wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And, and yet God brings them all together into this, this group of people, just in the 12 followers. <laughs> And so you, you kind of wonder, you know, if, if Jesus started his ministry here, <clears throat> who would he call? Uh, he would have, out of 12 people, I'm sure he'd have variety. He would have single, and he would have married, and he would have old, and he would have young, and he would have Democrat, and he would have Republican, and he would have Dodger fans, and he would have Giant fans, and he would have all those, those things that maybe make you different than somebody else. That's exactly God's design. You know, you think of, you think of uh, sometimes how we, we do that little thing with kids when we say, okay, here's the church and here's the steeple, open the door, and you, and you see all the people. 
I think we get used to saying, oh, yeah, look, everybody's the same. That's our hands. Not God's hands. God builds his church, his group of people, in an eclectic way. Oftentimes, that the way that he describes that in the Bible, probably the most common way that he describes that is, is the human body. He uses the illustrations of, hey, we've got, we all have different parts, but we're one body. So somebody's got to be the thumb, somebody's got to be the spleen. All right? Um, and, or another, someday maybe I'll pull out an old sermon. Uh, but there's a, I, I preached once uh, the story, or the parable of Crayola, and I used a, a crayon box, and I said, look at all the colors. But it wasn't just the colors. It's also, you know, how much they're used, or are they bent, or are they torn wrappers, or are they sharp, or are they dull? And, and um, you know, it's a very, it can be a decent illustration. I, I preached that probably 20 years ago, and I remember leaving that church, there was a, a little lady, uh, her name was Sal, uh, just fun-loving lady, and she'd always have her glasses up here, and she could never remember where her glasses were. And, um, but she's about four foot nine, and she just gives me this big hug at my farewell, and she says, oh, pastor, just remember, I'm the short crayon in the box. Um, and and that's, that's maybe sometimes, you know, those are, those are beautiful illustrations. And, and yet the way God talks about it today, he, uh, through Peter, he doesn't use the picture of, of crayons. He doesn't use the picture of a body. Today he uses the picture of a building. First uh, Peter 2, if you heard this again, he says, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. I want to explore that a little bit with you today. What does it mean or why does he use that word? Even that word stones is rather important. That he doesn't say, hey, you like living bricks are being built together. Why? Because bricks are all the same, or can be. You go to a factory and you can make them all the same size, all the same color, all the same dimensions. Stones are unique. And sometimes it takes creativity to, to mortar those stones together. Or even if you don't mortar them together, if you, have your, you do some landscaping and you put stones around a flower garden, you, you kind of have to rearrange them or you, you build up a wall together and, and you have to you know, put all those things together in such a way, kind of like Jenga, so that they don't topple over. And it can take time, it can take energy, but then when they're, they're there, it's just this, this beautiful mosaic. And, and that's how God works. That's, that's why he chooses this word stone. That he's not looking for just carbon copies of everybody to bring into his church. But he designs us in such a way that we bring our unique gifts, our unique abilities, our unique backgrounds. And and so that's one thing to appreciate about this picture that that Peter paints for us. But I also want to look at that other adjective. Living stone. Maybe that strikes you, if you really think about that, that should strike us as sounding odd. We usually use stone as an adjective for dead. Your heart is stone. It's lifeless. Um, or, or you're stone cold, right? Uh, you're as boring as a rock. Um, and yet here, he uses the adjective living. That should just make our ears perk up right away. And, and living, just like the word suffering shows up numerous times uh, throughout the book of, of 1 Peter, living 
is the positive word uh, that shows up, I think, at least seven times throughout 1 Peter. He starts off in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. He says, hey, you have a living hope. Uh, and Vicar's going to preach on that, that theme next week. But you have a living hope. What does that tell us? It tells us that our faith in Jesus isn't just something, or the fact that Jesus rose from death doesn't just have future ramifications. You will have hope. And it doesn't just say, hey, you've got something that he did is, is helpful in the past. No, this is something that affects you today. It's an ongoing living hope and then you fast forward you fast forward in that first chapter and he goes on to say uh, that, that you are, are born again through the living word of God uh, Peter's not the only one to say that you can find that theme throughout other places in scripture to tell us that that this book is not just some dead black on white but it's living and active and it melds us together. It, it's the mortar that holds us together, the stones together, right? We are, we are joined together uh, by the word. And, and so you, you look at some of these questions or these, these very first two chapters of 1 Peter. How can we have living hope as living stones mortared together by the living word? And there's only one answer. The only way that we can be living stones all melded together by the living word is because of what we celebrated a few weeks ago. That we have a living Savior. Or the way that Peter puts it here, he says, you are living stones, why? Because you come to him, the living stone. So let's just see what Peter talks about, how he describes Jesus, the living stone today you know he starts off here he says this living stone was rejected by humans uh, that word rejected could also be translated he didn't pass the test uh, if you want to use that stone illustration you could say the people around jesus they kind of saw him as a cubic zirconium right they, they there were some there were some sparkles there there was some flash there that that was made him somewhat attractive to them uh, attractive to them at first. You know, he feeds 5,000 people with one little boy's lunch at night. Wow, look at him sparkle. Or he raises a few people from the dead, and they're like, wow, look at that shininess. But then what happens? They put him to the test, their test, of what, you would, of what they considered should be the Messiah, what they should, considered should be the, the Savior of the world, and, and, and restore them to what they thought was, was glory once again. And what happened? He didn't meet their criteria. They didn't see him as some diamond in the rough. They saw him as just someone in the rough. Uh, someone who was less than what they expected. And just this cubic zirconium that said he's not valuable anymore. And they got rid of him. They trashed him. They threw him away. And, and maybe at times that's our appraisal of Jesus as well. That, that maybe, just maybe, you know, like, like the people of his day, there's something about Jesus that attracts us to him. You wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning if you weren't at least somewhat attracted to this message of Jesus. But then what happens? We put him through our tests. He, he maybe says something that I don't like to hear. 
And we're like, well, I don't value him anymore. I don't, I don't value that portion of what he says, and we kind of toss him aside. Or he maybe doesn't answer a prayer the way that we thought he should answer a prayer. And so he doesn't pass our test of, of the way we think he should be. And he's kind of just a cubic zirconia to us. Well, let me ask you, if you were buying an engagement ring or if you were buying diamond earrings for yourself, whose appraisal would you want? Yours or the jeweler's? Would you just want to say, oh, look at that one. That one's nice and shiny. I'll take that one. Or would you rather have something that goes under the microscope and says this is valuable for this or that reason? Or, or better yet, not even what, what would your insurance company want? Would they just want your, uh, your, uh, your, your assessment of it? Oh, yeah, it's nice and pretty, right? Uh, no, they want, they want the, all the markings uh, of, uh, of everything that the, that the appraiser says. That says. This is what it's worth. Well, Jesus. Jesus didn't just go through human appraisals. He went through God's appraisal. And look what it says here. It says, yes, Jesus, this precious, this living stone was rejected by humans, but chosen, chosen by God and precious to him. If you were with us last week, whether it was online or whether it was in person, uh, we looked at another portion of, of Peter's letter where he says, you are redeemed, redeemed by, from our empty way of life. By what? By the precious blood of Christ. And we talked about the significance of that word, how it just shows <clears throat> automatically it conveys a sense of value. That God saw value in his son Jesus. And it wasn't like God the Father didn't put his son to the test. He didn't just say, oh yeah, he looks good, way to go. No, he, he, he put him through more rigorous tests than you and I do. We just say, hey, Jesus, do you answer this prayer the way that I like? Okay. No, what did God do? God the Father said, here's a cup of wrath. Drink it. And we see Jesus on Monday, Thursday in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, what does he say? He says, oh, if there's any other way for me to save the world, please take this cup from me. But then he ends it. He says, ah, but not, not my will, but yours be done. He passes the test. Or there he is on, on Good Friday. And you've got heathen, heathen soldiers driving nails through his hands and through his feet. If there's ever a time where he would just say, forget what God says. I'm not going to love my enemies. Do you see what they're doing to me? And yet, what does Jesus pray? Father, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. Test after test after test. The father threw his son's way for 33 years. And every test he passed. Precious. Precious to God. Valuable to God. So valuable to God that, that God makes this assessment. He says, okay, because you passed every test, including me pressing down on you with my full wrath, the, the suffering of hell, the torments of hell on Good Friday as you carry the sins of the world on your shoulders. 
Because you passed that test, God goes on to say, see, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. What does that mean? It's helpful to understand what Zion is. Zion was a location. Uh, Mount Zion is where the temple was in, in Jesus' day. So what God is saying here is this. Because Jesus passed every test, he's somebody that I can build my church on. He can be that cornerstone that, that on which everything else will hinge. Because he's perfect. Because he's precious. And to understand that picture, too, about cornerstone, uh, maybe it's a little bit lost today. We think of cornerstones as just this decorative piece that says 2023 with a time capsule inside of it. Uh, cornerstones, engineering-wise, architecturally-wise, in Peter's day, I mean, that was, that was the important stone of a building. All the, all the weight distribution, all the angles, everything hinged on that cornerstone. It had to be a, a perfectly set. Otherwise, the walls would come crumbling down, they'd cave, they'd collapse. And, and when you think about, okay, now we're the living stones that are built on that cornerstone. Why, if, if we didn't have a strong cornerstone, we would collapse. And, and he uses this picture of walls, too. And, and, and back to understand walls, the importance of walls in Peter's day, uh, walls were like the first first act of defense for a city. Every city had a big wall around it, and the, the sturdier the wall, the safer you were. And, and so when you think about that, that we're living stones built on this living stone, this cornerstone, uh, th to understand we're going to be attacked. The Christian church is always under attack. You have cannonballs of, of physical and emotional challenges trying to knock us over. You have you have flames being thrown at us in the form of fiery words that want to burn us down. You have arrows being shot at the church, at us, trying to get it, their way into the mortar that, that keeps us together as stones, trying to, trying to penetrate, trying to make us weak from within and without. As living stones built on the stone, we can expect that. We can always expect that. It, it kind of reminds me of this. Uh, this is a... Uh, one of the walls in Jerusalem. And if you can see there, it's maybe kind of hard to tell on the screens, but this is one of the city walls that was always under attack. You can see all the, the chisel marks and the attack marks against it. And yet for centuries, centuries, that wall has stood. That's God's picture. That he doesn't promise that you won't have attacks come your way as your living stones. But when you're built on the living stone, you'll continue to stand. Not because there's anything special or strong about the stones, but because of who we're built on. And ultimately, I guess that is what I would want you to go home with today. Uh, to be assured of that, that living hope that you have that no matter what attacks come your way as living stones as part of Christ's church, you'll stand. You'll stand because of Jesus, the cornerstone. And that you recognize that he's not just something nice in your life, but just how necessary he is in your life. 
that you don't just see him as some pretty thing to look at once in a while when it's convenient, but that he's precious. Precious to God, yes, but also precious to you. Uh, Peter goes on to write, he says, anybody who's connected to him, the one who trusts in him, will never be put to shame. God will never be embarrassed to have you as part of his wall. That's what makes him precious, not just to God, but to you. And that's what he says on this next page. He says, now to you who believe this stone is precious. And when you think about that value, that we're all built on that cornerstone, that really changes the way that we look at each other too. That you see all the eclecticness and you say, wow, what an amazing thing that as different as we are, God can all bring us together and that we can stand on Jesus, the cornerstone. That, that is, there's nothing else in the world that can do that. And it really changes our definition of who we are. Now we're not just moms and dads or, or kids or, or married or widowed or Dodger fans or Giant fans or dog lovers or cat lovers. Now we have a whole new identity. Our primary identity. And that's what Peter goes on to say here too. He says, think about yourself this way. You, you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God. That's who you are. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Might you continue to find hope, living hope in that truth, marveling at the way that God takes us living stones and he melds us all together only because of our living Savior. Built on a living stone, you will not fall. Amen. May the peace of God which surpasses 